You are listening to the OneOfUs.net Podcast Network. One of Us is a podcast and video network funded all but entirely by donations and subscriptions. We do accept pitches for audio-based or banner ads, but on a case-by-case basis. If you are interested in that, contact us at oneofusnet at gmail.com. With the amount of audio and video content we generate, it is expensive and extremely time-consuming to keep things running. Please go to the webpage oneofus.net and sign up for a subscription at 2 5 10 or $25 and get a ton of bonus content. One of Us needs and appreciates all your support. Dear Netflix, please stop raising the price of my subscription. And please stop canceling shows after only one season. I know you're running a business, but perhaps don't give people over $100 million to film once-considered unfilmable novels that are only going to play for a very niche market, and you're only going to put in a theater for less than a week. Uh, I'm just saying, you know, if this movie is $100, $140 million, maybe that could have, you know, supported a couple of those other series that actually had followings, uh, but you canceled them after one season. I'm just saying it's a modest proposal. You guys are smarter than I am, because if I were smarter than you, I would be running Netflix, and I would be a bazillionaire. But, you know, meanwhile, I'm just a schmuck with a microphone, joined by a couple of other schmucks with microphones, and boy, do we have some opinions I am joined by Neil. Hello. And Bo. I promise not to put my schmuck on the microphone. Thank you. I am Marco, and I make no such promises. We are here today to talk about White Noise, based on the 1985 Don DeLillo novel, considered a classic of American postmodernism and often deemed unfilmable. Well, Noah Baumbach, who is probably... Uh, is he our new Woody Allen? Is he our new Wit Stillman? I don't know or? if I'd, I'd go that far, but he's definitely like one of the bigger indie heroes du jour. He really hasn't done a lot of mainstream stuff. Ironically enough, it's his, his wife who has kind of gone on to direct Little Women and, coming soon, Barbie. So This is a guy who normally does movies uh, on a modest budget about, you know... Uh, family um, deterioration. Family deterioration, the relationships between unhappy neurotic... New York academics and members of the upper class, etc. So exactly the guy you're going to give, you know, a hundred plus million dollars to, to make an epic, unfilmable novel. White Noise is set in the 1980s. It's about a college professor, uh, Jack, here played by Adam Driver. He's got a wife uh, played by Greta Gerwig, Babette. Together, it's like their third or fourth marriage each. They have a blended family with a bunch of kids. They're, you know, two white liberal academics living in this, you know, picturesque little Midwestern town. They talk about academic things. They talk about Hitler studies. They talk about the fear of death like you do. And then one day there is a uh, a toxic gas leak uh, occurs after a enormous train collision. Now we're in a disaster movie, but then that part ends and we get back to the family drama and... I don't know how to summarize this film, which is why I think it's been considered unfilmable for so long, because this is not a movie about the plot. It's a movie about its themes and the way people talk about them. It's it's not a movie that you summarize unless you're prepared to do three or four summaries. 
because, like you said, we're we're dealing with a lot of different movies in one, which are in the the novel. They're they're kind of split up, and they're they're meant to be what they're what they're meant to be, which is, as you said, kind of examinations of of what's going on in you know Delillo's head. Boy, it's niche because a lot of it is a send up of Academia, which. You know, if you read Dom DeLillo novels, you're probably a member of the Academia, or at least you're very familiar with it. And so, there's some stuff, if you're familiar with that rarefied atmosphere, it's hilarious. You know, seeing Don Cheadle and Adam uh, Driver playing dueling professors that are, you know, kind of trying to one-up each other on who was the greater like, historical icon, Elvis or Hitler, is fucking hilarious from a certain perspective. But then when, like, literally 15 minutes later, you're in a Wes Anderson version of Close Encounters of the Third Kind, there's a lot of what the fuck is going on going on. Neil, are you familiar with any of Don DeLillo's work? I mean, is this your first time coming to it? Yeah, this is my first time of anything of his. So, brand new. I get a vibe of... A little bit of world according to Garp in here. The, just the how the world is the lens we see it through. Some hints of mumblecore and how it's presented, which that I'm probably projecting because of Greta. In my opinion, the only good or great thing that came out of mumblecore. But you, it's it's tough to settle in. Bo mentions how the book is clearly separated, as it's like three to four stories in one bigger story, and the movie does the same thing where. I liked it, but I wish I could have got to know this family a little bit, just a little bit more. We get these high-minded swoops at them, broad strokes, but their kids seem interesting. They seem interesting, but we just keep moving on. Oh, there's a toxic cloud. Oh, there's a there's an experimental drug that will stop you from fearing death. Oh, we have this professor off, which was entertaining, but it just keeps moving. You never get to stand still long enough to, I think, soak it up. I still enjoyed it, but it just misses the bullseye, I think, a few too many times for me. In many ways, I'd say, like, well, the proper way to kind of tear this stuff down and go in deep enough for you to really appreciate it is to have, like, a five-episode miniseries where you delve right in. But, once again, this stuff is so niche, and for such, like, a small percentage of the Netflix audience of all audiences you know not, not trying to make anybody out there feel feel dumb or I'm just saying it's just like hey most of you probably aren't into academia and jokes just saying um, and most of you when you when you start feeling a certain Steven Spielberg je ne sais quoi you probably want to stay in that Steven Spielberg movie and and not go into a whole different thing the next episode and so yeah this really doesn't make a good miniseries and I can see probably that that Bombach was really enjoying himself. I think the actors were really enjoying themselves. The performances were great. I really thought people were having fun with this, but yeah, it's kind of one of those things where the audience is sitting on the tarmac just watching the 747s go over and over and over their heads. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple things there that Bo mentioned that I want to touch on. This is an expensive movie. I mean, we don't have the exact figures, but it's reported to be at least over $100 million. At moments, it shows. At moments, it feels like, why does this movie cost so much? You have a good cast, but, you know, there's we're not talking Tom Cruise-type money here. Yes, you have some really good spectacle here at, at moments, but it's not a Marvel movie. It feels like an indie drama art house film 
but then has like some compelling action sequences. And it's not the kind of thing you expect from Bombach. I got to give him credit. He's taking some big swings here. I kind of joked about how he kind of does these small Woody Allen type movies, but here he gets a little bit of disaster film. He gets a little bit of sci-fi. He gets a musical number. He gets academic satire. I must note that that, that car, that car chase sequence, not in the novel. Just saying. No, it is not. But he adds it because at some point somebody said, hey, we need some action in this thing. A really compelling train uh, crash. Not long after we get this very odd, you know, lecture about, you know, the power and majesty of train crashes and how it's important to the American psyche. He's taking swings here. He's doing something he's never done before. And I just have to imagine that Marriage Story did so well on Netflix and during award season that Netflix just said, what do you want to do next, Noah? And he's like, well, let me do the movie that literally no one else will give me the money to make. Yeah, fair. And, you know, probably they should, you know, this may have been the case of like, hey, man, this, this guy's batting the hell out of the, these balls. Let's, uh, let's, let's do something. What else do you want to do? He's like, I'd, I really like to adapt white noise. And they kind of looked at each other and were like, what the fuck is white noise? I don't fucking know. Yeah, go ahead and do white noise. I, I think we've got the rights to it. How that? I have no idea where that hundred million went. I don't, I don't think a fraction of it's up on that screen unless it's the production of the look. The, the grocery store, which comes into play a few times, maybe retro station wagons cost that much. I don't know. If they gave a portion of that, a, a good portion of that money to uh, uh, the man behind LCD sound, sound system, he came he dragged out, of him out of retirement. He came out yeah. of retirement to do that that supermarket uh, uh, sequence at the end. And, and that song fucking slaps. It's fucking awesome. It's just like, this is the best part of the movie. They, they should have started and ended with this. <laughs> I don't think it would take up that much. They probably paid him well. Fingers crossed. Because they, they used the whole song. They used yeah. the whole song. It's not playing over the credits. It's the end of the movie. Yeah. So they get every ounce, every second of it on screen. And, um, and possibly an Oscar nomination for best original song. You've also got Danny Elfman, who's another heavy hitter, coming in to do the score. It's such a smart film in so many ways, but it also just feels a little bit overblown. And yet I kind of like that. We talked a lot about this Toxic Cloud event. Based on the trailers, it kind of looked like, oh, this is going to be an apocalyptic type tale of survival. And they survive through that, but it exacerbates uh, Jack's fear of dying, which is a theme that runs throughout the novel, both he and his wife who is becoming increasingly distant. We find out some of the reasons why. At some point in the story, we're introduced to a character played by Lars Eidinger. He's kind of floating around the periphery of the film, but towards the final third of the film, he kind of snaps into focus and brings some much-needed energy back into it. I only know this guy from the uh, batshit crazy uh, TV version adaptation of Irma Vep. But in Irma Vep, you know, he's like this loose, alcoholic, drug-addicted, pain-in-the-ass actor. But he brings all of this kind of strange, unpredictable energy in every scene he's in. And he does some of that here. And boy, it's needed because I have a feeling, depending on your personality, you're going to like one of these segments more than the other because they do feel so distinct. You, know, you got Don Cheadle in the first one, you got Eidinger in the third part, and then you've got you know, the apocalyptic, you know, disaster movie stuff and action beats in the second part. 
But like Bo said, it's it feels like three movies that are trying to fight for dominance. At least three. You could probably argue for four, even five. And, and, and yeah, it's just like, there's probably a through line that comes across in the novel that can really only be conveyed in a literary medium that, you know, just isn't coming off here. And I, I Bombach can handle some heavy lifting. So I, I, you know, I don't think that it's him. I, I think it, you know, as you said, this is Optimum Class, is an unfilmable novel. And uh, uh, I think this, this may indeed uh, uh, prove that to be the case. Well, the novel apparently, and I haven't read it, uh, full disclosure, I've read some John DeLillo novels and uh, I've even been in one of his plays. And I like his work, but it doesn't necessarily scream cinematic adaptation. They're not easily digestible. Uh, I believe White Noise, which I have not read, is supposed to be largely told through dialogue. And some of the dialogue here is very intricate. The sentence structure is odd. It's very stilted. It's very stylized. And sometimes that works. I think, as like Neil and I were talking earlier, you know, when Don Cheadle is on screen and he's giving this sort of academic, you know, bullshit speak, it's kind of fun and riveting because he's not playing a real character. He's playing a construct. Exactly. You know, but then you have the more grounded, psychologically nuanced versions of those characters that Driver and Gerwig are playing. But given that heavy-handed dialogue, it doesn't always work. This is probably the thing that you need somebody like David Lynch to lean all the way into. There needs Because it's so stylized at points that you almost need somebody with a, you know... A, a more than a dash, like a, a, a firm, solid pound of batshit crazy to work with. And uh, I don't think Bombach has that. I, I think he's a really good filmmaker. I think he's, you know, uh, he's really good about human stuff, like we said, family dissolution, uh, you know, getting to the spirit of those matters. But yeah, like, I think this shows that the dealing with the surreal aspects of this didn't really turn out to be his wheelhouse, or at least bringing them all together. Yeah. I mean, and we've barely touched on all the number of themes that are through the novel and through this film. I mean, crowd dynamics, pollution, modern anxiety, fear of death, addiction, you know, media, corporations, you know, uh, conspicuous consumption, health fads, and so forth. It's trying to do so much. Maybe in the novel, those themes can coexist a little more comfortably. Here, they seem siloed into the three different sections, which seem to kind of compete for our attention. Well, and one other thing is that when he wrote the novel, it was a contemporary novel. It takes place in the early 80s, but the book came out in like 84, 85, so... He wasn't really trying. He was commenting on the now. And maybe that's another distraction from the overall themes in the, in yeah. the conflict that you're just like, oh, we're, we're doing this, this retro thing. I think we, I think you just figured out how he sold Netflix on this. He's like, right. I told them it was like Stranger Things and they uh -huh. just gave me a shitload of money. And they're like, they don't fucking know. They've never read the book. It, yeah, that, and, and to, that cloud may as may as well have had a demigorgon in it. Yeah. I mean, and to Neil's point, you know, it's beautifully designed. I mean, like, especially the supermarket sequences, which it's one of those things where it's like, yes, you've got all the products. Yes, you have all the branding. Yes, it's all bright and colorful, but it's a little too colorful. It's a little too bright. It's a little too art directed. We're constantly being reminded of how artificial it all is. 
And that's an artistic choice that I think actually works. But beyond the sort of retro vibe of it, and all of the station wagons and everything, there's no doubt in my mind that that book is still relevant to today. Its themes still resonate. But I'm not sure why they leaned into the 80s. Maybe that's where a lot of the budget went, recreating the 1980s on a vast scale. But wouldn't it have been more compelling if they just... I don't know, said, hey, these things matter today. Why don't we update it for a modern day audience rather than just lean in on the nostalgia of the era? I don't know if it would have worked because the the disaster. Cell phones. Cell phones. It's always cell phones. And this also takes place on the edge of better living through chemistry, which now is we're well into that, that things are prescribed and handed out. TV commercials are I'm just picking a number. A third of them are drug commercials. This was not a thing yet. And that's that's two key pieces of two key stories in this. So I don't think you can easily update it to just flash it up to 2020. Here you go. Yeah. I mean, I hear what you're saying, Neil, but I don't know. Maybe there was a middle way. Maybe we sure. were past the 80s. Maybe maybe it's the early 2000s. It could still be a period piece. But yeah, I, I just found myself constantly going like, well, yeah, that was relevant in the 80s. What does that say about today's culture? And was it worth spending all of this money to do a period piece if you're saying, well, that's weird shit happened then, but we're better now. But like Neil was saying, you know, it, it's still happening. Yeah. It's just escalated. And maybe there was a commentary there. That was the shallow end of the pool. <laughs> I did it. This is such a small, tiny, weird thing, but I did appreciate in the supermarket. They had the, as I remember, the first generic products. Yes. Go, living in a small town and then going to a small college town, like the chips, it was a white bag that said potato chips on it. They had those generic brands in that supermarket, and I love that little detail. It's easier for production, but they were legit real things back in the day, too. Oh, no, I remember. I mean, I remember you could get six packs of beer. They were white cans with black letters that said beer. And I know right now Bo is having flashbacks to Repo Man, <laughs> as am I. But... You know, uh, Miller High Life is the, the, the uh, champagne of beers. Generic beer is the beer of beers. <laughs> of beer. It is the ur beer. It is the platonic (laughs) form of beer. It's all a beer needs to be. But, you know, rather than go on any further, why don't we start rolling into our final thoughts? Neil, would you kick us off, please? Sure. This was my first exposure to this any of this author's work. I I enjoyed it, but am I going to revisit this? It'd be a long time before I rewatch this. I've I've rewatched World According to Garb. I don't know how many times. You're connected. You're grounded to a character. We don't get grounded to any of these characters. That's my one critique, gripe, shortfall with this movie is apparently in the book, Jack's the main character. Babette is barely involved with most of the storyline she's involved with in the movie. Points to do that. Cool. But I don't think we get enough. Either make them real people or make them cartoons. Like we're saying Don Cheadle's character is, I think, more appealing as kind of the cartoon because he opens the movie and he's the first one we meet. But we don't get enough. I'm interested in those kids. I'm interested in this couple. And then we move on. They flitter on. But I still enjoyed it. I'm going to give it 6 out of 10 station wagon trips down the river. Bo? Um, yeah. So, swing and a miss. Heart swing, almost, maybe. It was, you know. They, they, were, playing, they were playing baseball. Some form of baseball. There were balls and bats involved. I don't know how close the bat got to the ball, though. And it's, it's sad. But a little predictable? Because, yeah, I, I think, you know, Bombach looked upon the, the Everest of white noise and, and 
uh, told himself, we don't need oxygen tanks. We don't need Sherpas. We're just going to charge. Um, and, you know, maybe they got to the first base camp before uh, things things went awry. Um, yeah, there's fun to be had in this for certain, you know, niches. But I don't think the average Netflix viewer is going to want to go in there with uh, – with his own Sherpa and, and uh, try to try to pull the bodies off the off the summit. So uh, yeah, I I, you know, I won't go so far as to say it's a hundred million down the drain, but uh, yeah, nice try, guys. And uh, you know, I, I I hope this group of actors stays together and does something else because it looks like they were having fun. It looks like Noah Baumbach was having a lot of fun directing them. The only thing I can really say is is if you do watch this, uh, stick around to the end. Watch that uh, LCD sound system sequence. It is well worth it. Uh, or fast forward. Just, you know, shoot right ahead through uh, the, the first two hours and uh, <laughs> end lightly on the, the last five minutes. Worthy try, guys. And I, I will always respect a worthy uh, try. I'm going to give it, uh, I'm, you know, I'm going to stick with a six as well. I will give it six out of ten unsimulated simulated disasters. There's no doubt that Bombach has taken some swings here. You know, we talked earlier about the kind of films he's made in the past. We have a certain idea of, you know, what he does. They're sort of domestic dramas, people in a room having conversations. Here he proves that he's got the tools to direct action, to direct sci-fi, to direct even sequences of horror and adventure and he's kind of had those tools in his box and never gets to pull them out of the toolbox. And here, this script gives him an opportunity to do that. Uh, it's a really good proof of concept that here is a guy who can work in a variety of genres, not just these sort of mumblecore adjacent, you know, dialogue-driven character pieces. It's an ambitious story. He's taken a lot of swings. And, you know, I, I disagree with Bo a little bit. In that, I think sometimes he does connect. Uh, his batting average isn't perfect. On paper, I think this is a terrible business decision. I mean, they only dropped it in theaters for about a week or less just to qualify, I imagine, for awards. It's a supposedly a $100 million plus budget, and they've claimed that they've had about $35,000 in ticket sales. A movie is not defined by how much it cost or how much it made. We all know that. That shouldn't matter. I only bring it up because... From a business standpoint, I don't see them ever letting somebody do this again. And that's too bad because I love the fact that he gets to do something this ambitious. I, I would much rather you have a guy come in, take a chance, and shoot for the fences. And maybe, just maybe, he'll make a masterpiece. And if he doesn't, then at least it's going to be an interesting failure. And I think that's kind of where we're at. I have a feeling that as time goes on, this film may find its audience. But boy, it's not going to find one right away. Uh, I think it's worth it if you're a little more adventurous and you're willing to put up with a fair amount of tedium and some maybe too clever for its own good dialogue. But there's good stuff here, and I'm glad he took a chance. I hope they'll give him another one. Uh, I'm going to give this 7 out of 10 six-packs of White Label beer, which now I want. I want that. I, I As a child, I couldn't drink it. Now I'm really kidding. You, you know it's just like Bud Light or something, right? It's cool. Every drop contains real beer. 